easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Salson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guests today, PJ Dundas and Lee Kirk, known to his colleagues and friends as Kirky. They are the founders of the Methodical Movement Systems, an online education platform for athletes, coaches, and everyday weekly and weekend gym warriors. They also both work as performance specialists at the University of Exeter. PJ and Kirky come highly recommended from previous guest Danny Foley, so I found their Instagram page and love the content they've been putting out. I got really excited for this conversation, and today we covered starting a business as a strength coach. They are very similar to my situation in the UK where they both work at a college and they also started up a personal training business on the side. We touched on the, the way to grow as a coach and how this kind of creation of content helps us as a coach and kind of pushes us forward and to the next level as being a coach. And we finished up with the, the importance of keeping what you'll talk about on the weekend with your buddies, the goal in training. Really enjoyed this conversation with two coaches that are really pushing the field forward, not only in the sports performance realm, but in the business realm and how we value ourselves as coaches, which I think is really important. I think we're going to continue to see the progression of building brands and businesses like this as we go forward in this field. Personally, as a podcast host, this was a challenging and fun podcast for me because our first time with two other guests and figuring out how to direct conversations and ask questions to where they were able to answer and go in a smooth conversation-like platform. And we're over Zoom right now with the quarantine. So this was an awesome challenge for me. So I hope you guys get something out of this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Well, coaches, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. This is going to be the first three-person podcast we've had at Yoke of Strength. Yeah, thanks for having me. How you doing, Austin? Cheers. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to tell the the listeners a little bit about your your background or kind of how you guys came together, how you guys got into the world of sports performance, and guys, how how you started your your company? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll let PJ go first, sure. Yeah, I'll go first, Matt. So, just for your listeners, Austin, I'm the Irish guy, and uh, Kirky's the English guy, so. We're, we're on good terms, regardless of our nationalities. We get along pretty okay. Um, so just a little bit about my, my background. My name is PJ Dundas. Um, I was born in Boston. My family are from Ireland. Um, I got into the area of sports performance, strength conditioning, kind of fell into the powerlifting world, um, kind of read everything you could around there. Vershansky's work, Louis Simmons, Steph Yorshies, and um, got injured. And then I started to read more around getting back from injury. That's how my love of strength conditioning first came into play. I studied in Ireland, originally a business background. Um, my friends kind of referred to me as a Forrest Gump, strength and conditioning, because um, I ended up in a few areas that um, I guess Forrest Gump would, if he was in, in SNC. So I entered the Westside Barbell, and I went to Ohio after finishing my undergraduate degree, um, went to Ohio State, then went over to Exos the year after, where I got to help, you know, coaches who work with everything from high school kids to NFL veterans and then NHL players. Um, done my master's and end up with a job at the University of Exeter, where I oversee two sports teams, uh, an academy or internship placement program and a concussion protocol system for the athletes who get a head injury. I guess um, tied with that, um, I run Methodical Movement Systems, which is an education online platform along with Kirky. And I generally work with anyone who's into mixed martial arts, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, cricket, and a few individual sport athletes that we see and a few gen pop as well. We do online coaching and training with through that. So that's um, that's me. Cool. Um, I guess I'll go then. So uh, for me, it was a you know very much a case of I was an athlete in school, very much uh, football and basketball. 
So absolutely none of the sports I've ended up working in for the most part. Um, so left that, kind of didn't really know what to do. So went down the kind of personal training route, um, as most do. Um, while I was there, it was a case of really getting my head into that, getting excited about training. Then I decided to go down a little bit more of a specialism and I actually went the other way. So I went towards the GP referral route. Um, I actually did that for a year and a half um, where I was working with sort of cardiac rehab, you know, all high blood pressure, depression, all that kind of stuff. Um, that time kind of really made me realize that probably isn't for me. So I went to uni uh, fairly late, went and did my um, undergrad at the University of Gloucestershire. Um, that was under Rodri Lloyd, who's quite big on the kind of youth athletic development scene. So I continued to do PT to pay the bills. Then when I came back, um, jumped straight back into that because, again, I uh, needed to pay the bills. But alongside that, I was looking for internships. I had quite a tough time looking for them, to be fair. Like, um, there's plenty that come up, but some of the ones I was uh, applying for were going, you know, I was getting applications back saying they had over 400 applicants for a, non, for a full-time unpaid internship for an entire year. So um, it was pretty difficult to get. I kind of gave myself to the end of the year at that point. I think it was about kind of, must have been February or something like that. And I basically said I had to the end of that year to kind of break into an internship or at least get somewhere with this. Otherwise, um, I was going to have to consider where I'm going to go with my career options. With that kind of timely, really, I ended up getting into the Exeter Chiefs, which are one of the best rugby clubs in the country. Uh, they won it a couple of years back and they're currently top before uh, coronavirus interrupted. I ended up interning there for a year before they employed me as an academy SNC coach. Again, I was there for a little while, for six months or so. Then my um, daughter was on her way, and I kind of needed a little bit more of um, job stability and a bit of a higher paycheck at the time. So I ended up going um, over to the University of Exeter and kind of resuming there, doing the rugby. I'm currently doing leading on the rugby program as well as the golf, and I also work with hockey. Throughout that time, I mean, I have kind of worked across most sports at some point but they are my major ones and have been for a couple of years now and obviously that kind of brings me around to working alongside BJ and sort of co-founding MMS um, which is kind of our baby as well alongside this alongside our full-time gig in terms of MMS that's kind of every athlete outside of that you know some of the athletes that fall under at the moment are kind of like you know military prep type athletes um, some sort of rugby football golf uh, blind football that I've worked with for a little while as well and that's certainly an interesting one and that kind of brings me to, to where I am now, I guess, and I'm working on and doing what I'm doing. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm interested in the, so you guys kind of have a little bit of a different background. The, 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 the typical athlete that got injured or is working out and got injured and is like, oh shit, like there's a whole another round to this sports performance world that we need to learn at. And then we have the, the trainer that went the personal training route, went the career route that a lot of personal or a lot of uh, strength conditioning coaches talk about, like getting stuck in that rabbit hole and be like, oh shit, this isn't what I want to do. Like, and paving that career path for yourself. How did you two like use both of your guys' background into what you mentioned as your baby? I'll let PJ go first. I like to think of myself as like, I, I read more books, I kind of areas written around philosophy, more so than uh, strength conditioning. I do read a lot of strength conditioning books um, and kind of material, but I guess I would reckon, I reckon Kirk is more the sports scientist amongst the, but the, the two of us reads quite in depth into research. Whereas I like to like, uh, I guess my skill sets lie in terms of, um, I enjoy the art of coaching. I'm a big fan of um, actually learning ways psychologically to create more buy-in, create better cultures and so forth. And I think, um, yeah, we just seem to align on different stuff. We've, uh, uh, Kirk has been more, I guess his his background was he 
done Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting was my background. So I kind of remeshed on that. And um, we challenged each other on quite a few ideas on the coaching floor. So we have um, quite a healthy, I call it honest conflict. We speak a lot, we challenge each other on a lot of ideas when we read research articles um, in the UK and some US, US um, bodies as well. And um, consistently challenge each other on those elements. And um, we just thought, you know, we started using it, being creative with it, turning it into our own stuff on the coaching floor. And um, yeah, that's where Methodical Movement Systems got kind of born from. Yeah, and that's that's something that I actually really wanted to get to. And I was I was hoping we got there. But the the, diff, the different backgrounds kind of meshing and, and going about that communication process for both of you, like you two full grown like men trying to run a business together and you, everybody has different ideas and you're trying to mold that into something that's better than just uh, Kirky's ideas or just PJ's ideas. You're trying to mold it into something that's better combined. What's kind of that communication process for you guys to where at, like you mentioned, you can challenge each other and you can do this, but at the end of the day, we know like we have a common goal. Yeah, I think we're very like, like we share, even though like different things kind of like float our boat, kind of excite us. Like I am very much about the details. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that really gets me going. And PJ, but I think that kind of helps because he very much complements um, my style and likewise with him. So he offers a lot of things that I really don't. You know, in terms of how like we deal with that kind of, you know, we're just full frank and honest. We both are very much down there. I guess there's a lot of coaches are these days, but kind of down the stoicism route. And we kind of love a lot of um, Ryan Holiday's kind of stuff. And um, we both work off the process of it's how you perceive anything. So, you know, the only way you can be offended is if you perceive it that way. Um, that's not necessarily how it's meant. And as long as we can be full, upright and frank and fair with each other, then that tends to work absolutely fine. And, you know, as PJ says, we've had a lot of a healthy debates, I would say, um, both on the gym floor and off it. And we always come out of it as better friends and business partners as a result of that. And, and with this uh, kind of process, how, how much would you say your guys' training programs and methodologies have changed because you guys, like, it, to me, it seems like you guys are doing a really nice job of not staying in that group thing, which I think a lot of coaches, they struggle with. They, they either surround themselves with people that agree with what they agree with, and they're not challenged a ton of the time. Like, how, how much has that guy helped you guys develop your methodologies and just be like, hey, this is right, this is wrong. Hey, we are doing this. Maybe this is better or this is the right way. Yeah, I'll take this one. Yeah. Um, how much does that influence us? Um, that's a great question. Um, it's very difficult to, uh, to not get caught up in the confirmation bias, you know, because I think when you have a news feed on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, you naturally follow people who affirm your ideas, you know, that's, um, kind of my issue with people who put out statuses on these websites and get people to affirm their ideas. You're generally probably following people that kind of affirm your ideas. I think we try to go a bit outside the box um, between stuff like Kirk, you just mentioned stuff we read and people we follow um, to challenge your ideas. You know, I've quite a, a few friends in the USA when I interned over there and the, I think us strength conditioning is very different to the UK. You know, I think, um, a U.S. prides more on people skills. This is just from my observation. Again, it's only subjective. People skills and building cultures, whereas the U.K. is very much data-driven. And I think I pull from both of those worlds because I've been able to go into both of those worlds to um, upgrade my own sports science and strength conditioning, you know. And I like to think Kirky's pretty much a pragmatic guy. Um, you try and search for objectivity, you know, looking for the best way, not your way. But I think if you aren't face palming yourself at least once a year, looking at your program from last year, or multiple times if you're me, um, 
trying to become better, then you're not doing the right job. You know, you're looking for, you know, you should be your athletes should get the best version of you through upskilling yourself and not just because you think it's the right way. Um, yeah. So that, that's me. No, I, I love that point that you brought up. Cause I, I tell people that all the time is like when I put stuff out or I'm talking about programming, like whatever it is, if in a year, I look back at that and don't think, wow, that sucked or wow, that was kind of stupid. Like to me, that tells me I haven't grown enough or I haven't done enough in that year to be like, look back on something. Like if I think look back on something in a year and be like, that was perfect. Like that, there's something wrong in that aspect of my life that I haven't grown enough in. Yeah. The amount of times I've uh, made up a good template, had what I thought was a good program. And then, um, you know, I'd run it for an entire year and thought, great, you know, I just build on that next year, change it a little bit, tweak a bit here and there. And then the whole thing's been thrown out the, thrown out the window and I'll start again. I think I do that pretty much every single year, um, if not halfway through. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely um, the same way, I think, I think. Something I'm interested in, in diving in with you guys is kind of the, the, we talked about a little bit in our previous meeting, but the, the, the balance between being the strength coach and then being the business owner, like it's very similar fields that you're working, like the business is forced performance, but at the end of the day, it is a business that you guys are trying to run. One, can you talk about the importance of why you think that's, why that's important for a strength coach to have those two sources of income and then two, how you guys are kind of balancing that out in your guys' lives? Um, sure. Um, I can go with this. So um, how you balance it, is it, in, into your life? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I think I guess some of the headaches that come along with it is that, um, you know, you need to be consistent in producing content and using your downtime efficiently, you know. I just think it's, uh, it's important to have that, I guess, that secondary income. During moments of this, you know, we, we obviously got a pandemic, so there's a lot of, you know, uncertainties. Um, supply and demand exists, so obviously the market determines your worth. We were always in the mindset that we'd rather create a door than keep knocking on one, you know. I think that's what most people have to get into the mindset of. You cannot blame other people in your industry for not um, supplying you with what you need in terms of like the lifestyle you want to lead because the, the market determines it, determines it, you know, basically basic supply and demand. And it's important to remember that I think people quantify value based on the hours you put in, not necessarily the quality and that coaching is an art form similar to being an artist being a musician you know if i was to give you an analogy austin um if you asked eminem let's say i'm a musician okay if you asked eminem to freestyle a rap for you and you gave him 60 seconds okay um he produced something you know fantastic if you asked me to write a rap for you that's 60 seconds long you gave me two weeks i'm putting more hours and i'm at eminem right now um you would get something like a tiger king crackhead bar spitting type of spiel you know because there's levels to the game you know um, the details, the intricacies, the depth of knowledge and understanding um, that comes with expertise. You can never get what you feel, what you fully deserve or what you're fully worth by um, putting in hours versus, you know, what you could get from a secondary income when you, when you know your value, you know. And that's, um, that's one of the reasons I think why it's important for uh, coaches to, to think about um, the business side of things rather than just depending on other people. It's, um, it's vastly important. Me anyway. No, I, I think that's, that's so right. And I want, I want to mention a little bit like how, because I'm very interested in diving into a little bit of the minds of the strength coaches behind this. Like where, where did this like seed plant in yourself to where you guys realize like that, that knocking door analogy that you had, like I, I'm kind of sick of basically begging for that, that salary or begging for that job or begging for that security. 
to where you're the guys are like, all right, we're just going to do this. Like we're going to go forward with this. Like where was that seed planted and how did you guys actually do that? I think for me, it was a case of, um, well, basically I had my first child and then my, um, my girlfriend changed jobs as a result of that. She works in the NHS, which is the, uh, national health service, which is getting hammered at the moment. Um, but you know, she was in that, she kind of changed the role that would fit a bit better with our family life. But then, um, we got our first paycheck and, uh, because of she wasn't any longer working unsocial hours and any of the kind of weekends and things, our pay and our sort of income was dramatically reduced. Uh, that was kind of certainly the point for me where I was like, yeah, where I am, there's not really anywhere to go. Like, you know, we are where we are. There's no one above us in terms of our actual role. So there's no way to go in that respect. We can certainly obviously grow as coaches, but not in terms of a promotion. So um, that was kind of the, the moment for me where I was a little bit like, I need to do something for myself. And I think I just read the um, Tim Ferriss 4-Hour Workweek book, um, which I loved, and PJ still has. Um, so the, uh, yeah, so I just read that. And I'd come in, I remember sort of talking about my, my frustrations to PJ. And then, um, yeah, you know, his, he can tell you his side of it from there now. Uh, yeah, my my thing really was, I always feel like a, I had a bit of an entrepreneurial um, spirit in me, Austin. So I've always been very much autonomous and very driven. If anyone knows me, I'm kind of like my way or the highway many times, which is um, both probably one of my best and not so good traits. Uh, I guess mine came from, I was a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk, talking about leaving a legacy. I know you're big on that yourself. And also being able to scale something. Because, um, you know, we were obviously very, we were, and we still do, we provide value to athletes on a daily basis. We like to think we do um, with our strength conditioning and sports science practices. But I was like, man, we're thinking about all these cool ideas. We have these discussions. Could we scale this and provide more value, you know? And, you know, potentially uh, make, make a living from it, you know? I, you get a lot of people, you know, talking about the term selling out, you know, they say you, you know, you sell out if you start a side hustle or do your own thing. You know, selling out is when you sell information that you're paid to sell rather than stuff you want to put out, you know. We put out stuff that we believe at the time of putting it out is the best we know at that time, you know. And that's not selling out, you know. Um, some practitioners, you know, just to live a better life, they obviously do their CPD, they do their, they do their degrees and so forth. And a pay, get, getting an extra paycheck isn't a slight to their integrity. You know, give, you know, they should, they deserve that, you know, the amount of um, hours you put into this game just to help people because it's a vocation, you know, as much as it is a career, you do, you don't get into this game to make loads of money and anyone who thinks otherwise should reevaluate it. And if you can help more lives and scale it and turn it into a potential business for yourself, it, everybody wins, you know, and anyone who um, disguises their opinion as, you know, you sold out or starts trolling you and starts telling you, giving you this, what they see as an objective opinion. It's a political agenda, you know, just to kind of shoot you down because they don't like what you're doing. Um, I don't think, I think we're kind of gone a bit astray with the field in that regard. You need to get paid for basically your worth. Like what, like you talk about the M&M analogy and like that, that's why he's worth more is because you have that skill set. And one thing that we talk about, like you see a lot of coaches get stuck or just stop that growing. And to me, a lot of that is there, there's nothing left to reach for. Like Kirky mentioned, like, you, you're already at the top of your position. Like there's no other like next tier. Like, yes, you can grow as a coach, but then if there's nothing driving you to grow as a coach, that's where I think you see a lot of the stagnant and just like accepting and keeping that same program over and over and just making things easier because that coach knows there's no next level for them. That's one thing I think the, 
having that personal, for me anyways, having the personal business, maybe you guys can agree or disagree, but having that personal business to me has driven me to grow as a coach 100% more just because every, every day there could be a next level. There could be a next line. There could be a next person that grown to your brand and family that you're trying to grow there. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. hundred percent. I think you're like, there's also that element around like, you know, how do you quantify our jobs? The job stability is low. So you kind of have to have a backup as well, but yeah, absolutely. It kind of, I would say like having your own brand and being able to reach the masses and certainly contribute in that way. Um, you have to be very careful about what you put out online. If, if you're not uh, correct or you word things slightly wrong, um, you'll certainly hear about it. <clears throat> and you know, that's, both that's a double-edged sword and i think it keeps you on your it keeps you on your toes and it makes sure you're growing as a coach and it can also you know if you do get it wrong which inevitably you do at some point um it's kind of nice to be humbled occasionally and i'm, I'm a big fan of that like getting information right you know we myself and Kirky, before we put up many posts particularly the risky posts you know a complex topic we tend to i mean honestly what goes into like an Instagram post that's like two paragraphs can take us a day or two or three just to collect the information correctly first, put out what we think is correct at that time. We really have to research topics before we put them out, you know? And even then people, people can, you know, attack you or if you phrase it slightly differently, Twitter's an interesting one because you're limited on words. So the context of what you mean can get, can get missed and can be, Yes, interpreted as something else. You really have to do your reading, which, um, you know, I read something by Jordan Peterson the other day that there's, there's very little difference between writing and thinking, you know. When you're writing, you are thinking because you're having to use both systems to create the, the message you're trying to portray. So when you're writing stuff continuously and researching it and putting it out online, it does make you a better practitioner. It makes you question your own methods you might be currently using also and the modalities you're using in your own program. Yeah, 100%. The, uh, the, the forcing you to you to dive deeper because you're actually going to put that information out there. You know, like you, 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 you are risking something. I, like the, the anti-fragile book that I'm reading right now is talking about putting skin in a game and skin in the game is the only way you grow. And when you put content out there, like you mentioned, like if you put something out there wrong or you put something out there that maybe is going to be a disagree, like that risky post that you talked about, even though it's what you believe, like if you don't, have something to back that up on, you're going to get attacked and destroyed on that post. So making sure you know what the hell you're talking about before you post it. And it forces you to do that rather than just talking to your athlete. Like when you talk to your athletes, like a lot of the athletes that this isn't their profession, like they're not going to know. So you could say a lot of wrong stuff to the athlete and that you're never going to really get challenged on that part. That's exactly it. I mean, especially if you're using um, sort of content from your own programs with your own athletes, like you're actually, if you are implementing this stuff and actually doing it um, and you can't, you know, you don't have your why sort of that, you don't really have a good rationale for why it's there, then you should, well, you should effectively be able to explain everything you do on your program on social media. Um, and if you're not willing to, or you can't, then, you know, there's some questions there. So it's certainly always keeps me on my toes in that respect. Like I, I like to question why I'm using something. And then if I think it's useful to others, then I'll, then I'll stick it up. No, that, that, that why is very, very important. I was, I just received a DM, I think it was two days ago from an athlete from uh, a school. And he's like, I think we're doing stuff wrong in the weight room or something like that. And he's like, I tried to question why we were doing it. And the, the coach blew up on me. He's like, what do I do in that leadership role? And I was like, if you can't question the why behind something, then there's probably not a why there. 
Oh, dude, yeah. for sure. You know, when it, I, I, I like Brett Bartholomew was on a podcast years ago and he said something about like a strength condition, strength conditioning jury. You know, you just stand in front of a strength conditioning jury and justify your why behind one element of your program and you can't justify it enough. Um, it shouldn't be in your program, you know. And I think, you know, deep down your heart of hearts, whether you're just going through the motions and clocking in or whether you know the details and the intricacies of your program. Yeah, 100%. With this, we, we, we touched on the content and we touched on the business side of it a little bit. I want to talk, dive a little bit deeper into almost that what that why is for you guys behind like what matters in sports performance when you guys go about this? What matters in health for your athletes? When you guys go about programming, when you guys go about content creation, like what matters for you guys? Like what are you guys digging into to try and get your athlete to that next level? Kirky, you can go first. Um, yeah, in terms of like a... I know philosophy is always an interesting one for me. Like, um, I remember PJ coming down. Um, he originally visited us before he actually came down and started working with us. And he asked me the actual same question about my philosophy. And I, I don't really have like any well-articulated sentences that I could put out there. Um, I know essentially I tend to go with like, do no harm, make people better. Um, but I like to think of like us as coaches as, as kind of like driving instructors, essentially. Like we want to teach these athletes some skills that are going to be lifelonging and something that they can take away. And I don't want to have them dependent upon me. And especially with the population that I work with, you know, most of the time I work with these guys for three years, guys or girls, um, but anywhere between three and five, but I'm not going to be with them forever. And um, I don't want to create dependency there. So, you know, do no harm, make people better and give them skills that they can go away with. And other than that, just, you know, try and take the low hanging fruit first and make sure everything's done with intent. Um, They're kind of, my principles that I kind of work around um, but I don't really have this kind of well articulated written out document that a lot of people have but um, I don't know if PJ's got a bit of a better one than me. Uh, no, I'm very, I'm very similar about the do no harm um, type philosophy I guess just upgrading lives physically and hoping that you know I guess five ten years on the line if I ever bump into this athlete again that um, I've left an impact on them you know uh, that's that would be kind of like my long-reaching goal. I guess the immediate goal is similar to Kirky, do no harm, um, upgrade performance, and yeah, just 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 again, the field is as much a vocation as it, as it is a profession, you know, and um, yeah, just trying to teach the basics savagely well, and you should always try and strive for your athletes to to be autonomous, be able to take skills away they can use for the rest of their lives, you know. Um, they should, you shouldn't have to babysit them and having to teach stuff all over again and again, you know. The driving instructor, as Kirky mentioned, has to be able to lead, leave the driver to go out to his own own devices, you know. That's a powerful thing. If you're you're not a good teacher, if you're not getting the message across, they'll be dependent on you. It's like kids, you know. They should be able to tie their own shoelaces. They have to be adults. They have to go out there and do and live in the world on their own. And similar with your athletes, you know, if they ever leave you, you should be able to... Um, to be able to take care of themselves once we get them on the program. And what's kind of that process then when you have that you have that young young freshman or young first year student come into you guys, new to the culture, new to the program, new to what you guys want, new to the driving school that you guys talked about. What's kind of the the day one process of implementing this program to where they realize like the goal is to get them to drive the car by themselves without you guys. Yeah, I think with the well, it will vary across sports. First of all, um, certainly minor. Uh, rugby and golf so i can only really speak for those um we kind of like the way we work is we all have our kind of separate sports that we kind of we focus on um 
with regards to how that works with a student coming in, mine can certainly be be difficult to say the least. Um, they'll often come in eight weeks before the season starts. I'll have up to a hundred bodies on day one, um, most of which I won't know who they are. At least half of them. Uh, there'll be a huge disparity in sort of ability, um, training ages, sort of chronological ages, and um, so. We have to really look at trying to get these athletes into a position whereby, certainly from a rugby standpoint, where they've got enough morphological and structural adaptations um, by the time the season starts, because you know players that aren't physically prepared won't last very long in a contact sport, um, as you would know yourself, Austin. So, um, but you know, so essentially, what we're doing when they come in is we're trying, we kind of have to assess on the fly. Like, I don't get this time to take every athlete through and go and through a monitoring process where I can look at every part of their movement. I can have to get them in, watch them, see what they're like on the floor, and then um, sort of progress and regress as, as I can. Obviously, with the athletes that I've had previous years, then that's a lot easier. But the guys that are coming in new to me with often little to no medical history, um, some will come from private schools where they've had a lot of SNC, some won't. Um, so again, like it's, it's just trying to get them all to a level whereby they can play and hopefully reduce the injury risk that happens there to build the kind of foundation for the, the sport-specific stuff and kind of try and give them as many gross motor skills as possible. But like it, again, like the, the disparity in ability then compared to those that have had several years of SNC to those that have had none is huge. And um, I have them all in a room at the same time. You know, they're, they're forwards, backs, 50-50, like they're often 50 blokes in a session for 45 minutes. I can't take and assess every single athlete individually. So it's um, sharpens your coaching eye, I would say. And you have to be able to kind of go out and put a few fires out and then um, work with them over, over the weeks and months as you go into the season and then go from there. Um, like they do kind of, they also they will do park use, we will do kind of um, wellness monitoring and all that kind of stuff does come into it. And we do assess and use sort of RPE data and a lot of training load, strains, monotonies, all that kind of stuff. Um, kind of our, our, our budget and um, heart rate monitoring and, and our GPS kind of stuff. But yeah, so, so the, like we have to inform it, but a lot of it has to be done um, with the coaching eye in mind. We can't use too many assessment tools as such. Yeah, and I think that's very. I, I love. I love that point because you see a lot. A lot of stuff posted on Instagram, or a lot of stuff in a book, talking about like the perfect way. Uh, and that that perfect way really means nothing. Like when you mentioned day one, you have 100 athletes show up to your door. You don't know 30 of them. It's your first time meeting 30 of them, and then you have to implement a culture. You have to implement what you're trying to do. You have to implement all of these things. And that perfect way that you saw on Instagram or right in the book, like has nothing to do. And I think that where it comes back to PJ's talk about that, the art of coaching, like that, that is so important than the art of coaching in that moment of, all right, what do we do on the fly right now? Like, how are we going to put out this fire? How do we going to prevent these fires? And how are we actually going to get some work done throughout this time? Well, we're learning these people's names. Well, we're learning their backgrounds and we're learning what they can do and progress and regress with all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, you know, very much they come in, we do that, and we try and give them some educational elements alongside that. Um, but again, like, we have to, there'll be some people who have seen these educational elements and have done them for sort of two years. There'll be some that are completely new to it. Um, but yeah, as you said, it's not textbook. Like, if you're looking to give someone five minutes rest between a clean, good luck with 50 blokes in a room 45 minutes. Like, you'll get nothing done. Um, so, yeah, what happens in the real world and what you read in a textbook or, you know, what I was taught at uni, it's not necessarily how it works in in the field. So do as many uh, accreditations or 
or qualifications as you like. But unless you've got a bit of experience under your belt, you're really going to struggle when you're thrown in the deep end. Skin in the game. Skin in the game. Skin in the game, exactly. So, um, yeah, Tully would love that. So. And Peter, what's kind of your, your method when, when you have these athletes come in day one? Is it very similar? Is it a little bit different? Is there is your setup and culture different with the teams? Because I know it varies. Like even, even if it's the same university, like each team has its own individual culture as well. Yeah, quite a difference, I guess. Not necessarily issues to Kirky, but I don't have as many athletes as he does with his rugby program. So I oversee your netball and our men's hockey program. I guess with the netball day one, who I'll use as my example. And I try to look at the KPIs of the sport. So I like the idea of reverse engineering, seeing what the X factors are in the sport. Um, so X factors in that ball will be, you know, jump height and covering as much ground as you can over short spaces. Um, it's, it's a very explosive sport. Um, again, the, I look at the injury epidemiology there. We have a lot of knee injuries and ankle injuries in that ball. Obviously female athletes and ACL injuries is quite high. So I try and look at ways to bulletproof those. I also try and look at ways to um, relate the movements that we do in strength and conditioning back to helping the girls to put more force into the ground so they can cover more ground. They can increase their jump height and so forth. So I'm always trying to relate the program back to what the, you know, the KPIs of the sport actually are. Um, and it can be tricky with non-contact sports because it's very obvious what you're doing in rugby. You know, you're trying to create muscle mass, like American football. You're trying to build mass in these guys. You know, when to contact, that'll you know relate to bigger hits. It'll mean you can in rugby, you know, get better scrums. With non-contact sports, it's a bit of a trickier sell because you can't necessarily see why a barbell or a dumbbell is, you know, relating back to those KPIs I just spoke of. So I'm just trying to create that culture by relating those KPIs back, trying to get the girls to understand the whys behind the program. I have our own standards for fitness testing. In terms of measures I do, I do some RPs like Kirky does. Um, I also speed test the girls very weekly um, via five, 10 meter sprints and so forth, just to see where we're at. And um, yeah, that's kind of my process, man. Um, similar to Kirky, I kind of have to do stuff on the fly because the discrepancies between fitness and their S&C levels are totally different. So you're having to um, put some some girls forward, some, pull some girls back, and um, yeah, get them to earn the right to progress, to work through that, that continuum of exercises and modalities until they earn the right to do it. Because um, I'd rather start with the simple things and doing them savagely well than jumping into the sexy party tricks you know because once you use those party tricks not only can you get injured you probably can't use them again because that stimulus is now gone yeah and we, we we talked about building up that that foundation in one of our previous calls and not like you mentioned just squeezing that tube of toothpaste of the athlete out from the rugby strength coach when he talks about that but again saving something in the tank for you it, it's more of like that that four-year approach with your athletes because a lot of times when you get them in that freshman year or that first year it's very it's very tough to not throw everything at them to try to get that result to show the sports coach like hey got to squat up 40 pounds like did all this and then the next three years of his college program like he's burnt out like he has nowhere he has no room to grow rather and you could have took that four-year approach with that athlete and actually when it's his senior year when it matters for him he, he's at the highest physical performance he could because you took the smart approach with him not the easy approach yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, as well, like, you know, on top of those points, like PJ said about kind of educating them as you go along, like it is pretty easy with uh, rugby in general. So, you know, they know that they do do want to shift weight, they enjoy it, and it's something that doesn't need to be sold to them. But as PJ said, with non-contact sports, it's certainly a little bit different. 
So, yeah, I mean, I find that with golf very much having to explain the whys behind what we do and educating all along the whole way um, and trying with those guys, you certainly can't do like I can be a lot more advanced with the rugby guys. I'm not typically at the beginning um, just because of the sheer numbers. But, um, you know, we can I can get a bit more advanced with these. With the golfers, it takes a little bit longer. Like some of these guys and girls haven't lifted ever. So um, explaining the why, making sure they understand why they're doing it try and get them to enjoy it first uh, and then start going into the, the hard stuff. But yeah, save your kind of Dan Baker, save your party tricks for later. Yeah. And the, the, my, my favorite thing is you have almost the two exact opposite sports. Like you, you have the golf where they have probably played their sport over and over and over and again, and they have perfected almost their skill set in that sport. And what they're missing is more of that sports performance and strength conditioning side. And then you have the other side of it where if it's if it's like if rugby, if these players are like a lot of the American football players, they've got big, they've got strong, they've got fast in the weight room, and they've 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 transitioned that to football. But it's not like golf where they've spent their entire time on the football field. So it's almost like the rugby guys if they played their sport more and we did more skill-based stuff with them, they would gain there. And this, the golf guys, they would love the, they, they should love the weight room more because that's what would lead to the bigger improvement. It's like almost like the law of diminishing return with those two sports. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we had a bit of a conversation about this before whereby, you know, the guys who are already strong, they know how much they need to do in terms of continuing doing that. Probably not as much. Um, like you said, the golfers are meticulous about their performance, their swing in every variable. Um, so, but some simple sort of strength and power adaptations for golfers, you know, you can increase their, their ground reaction forces, their transfer of body weight, uh, sequential summation of forces, any kind of like all that kind of stuff, all the kinetic chain linking, the deceleration at the end range, like all of the stuff that comes with it that can help you avoid injury um, and enhance performance. And there is a, almost an exact measure in golf. Like you've got club head speed and then you've got drive distance. Like drive distance is directly correlated to how much you can earn and how much you whip. Like um, you can't have those exact correlations in invasion-based games or team sports so much. Um, but like you said, it can be a little bit of a harder sell. I'm quite lucky. They have a fantastic group um, and they buy into everything we do and I've got a very good coach who works with me. So, um, yeah, I'm lucky in that respect but like trying to sell to the rugby guys that you don't need to be lifting heavy, heavy, heavy all the time. Like sometimes moving stuff quick is going to help you. Like we do need speed work. It's not all about doing your extra curls at the end of the session. Let's get some stuff and that's going to make a difference. Like, you know, let's try and get your limbo curl, pelvic control a little bit better. Like maybe you won't tear your hamstrings. That might be great. Like, um, all these things. So as you said, it's probably the same issues you face with American football in that regard. But it's nice to have on the opposite end of the pendulum, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think it's we, we mentioned this before too, but it's almost like they don't want to stop doing it because it's what they're good at. And it's almost like you have to you have to let, allow that athlete to see that it's the ego coming in the way. Like they're really good at lifting weights and they correlate that with, all right, usually the coach tells me this is a good thing. Usually the coach like compliments me and gives me the pat on the back there. Like, why would I not want to do these things? And a lot of times they, they have it, it's like stuck in that head. To, I lift big weights. Uh, it's got me to this point. So th- it's, it's the direct cor- correlation where a lot of times you have to rewire that, that setting in their head. Be like, hey, we could probably take your game to the next level if we focus on this thing. And that's probably not what got you to that point, you know. I think it's also when they're going out on a night out after a game day. <laughs> no one asks them what their max board jump is, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You can enhance performance so much more. Like there is these uh, cliches flying around, obviously, where, like, how much strength, how strong is strong enough. And, you know, you always want to be getting stronger, but 
putting huge amounts of effort in to get just a couple of kilos or a little, a couple of percentages on your squat when you could really be enhancing all your weaknesses and making use of that, that huge backlog, that huge horsepower that you have, um, actually trying to put that down, you know, there's a good analogy whereby if you look at the ankles, you know, if you've got flat tires on a sort of on a bike, you know, it doesn't matter how, how quick you try and pedal, you're not getting anywhere. Um, so the little bits of stability throughout the body make a huge difference. But trying to sell those kind of things to athletes that love shifting big tin is, uh, is difficult. Yeah. And I, I probably love, has the opposite problem. Yeah. I love the idea as well going into that um, when guys just want to lift heavy all the time is that everything's max effort, nothing's max effort. That it's almost like, and Mike Boyle talks about this in his new new DVD, um, talks about um, recipes versus menus, you know? Um, a recipe has certain ingredients that are put in at different times with different dosages to get the end product versus people who, who have menus, you know, where you pick whatever you want, you pick what you choose, don't care about volume. And when there's a discrepancy and a, a relationship breakdown between skills coaches and strength conditioning coaches, you feel like, oh, this is my hour with the athletes, so let's do as much as I can. That's a really stupid idea um, because you have to take consideration that load is load no matter where it's coming from. Volume is volume. You know, Even if they're doing freaking prehab work with a resistance band, even if they're warming up, even if they're doing some, some low-level activity in, in the skills side of things, um, your S&C is almost like filling up that cup of water. You know, You'd be very careful you don't tip that over. And we get very carried away, you know. And I like, I like the another another analogy I'll use is like, you know, Michelin star restaurants with the same ingredients as a cafe down the road, but execution knowledge is all matters, and less is more, you know. And that's one of the biggest lessons I think me and Kirky have both agreed on this year. When we write the perfect program, cut it by a third. That's that's nearly it, you know. Or always have dialogue with your skills coach because no amount of Nordics, no amount of prehab work is going to save your program if that's gone through, their volume's gone through the roof and you're trying to compensate for it, you know? You're almost like a risk manager when it comes to volume. Yeah, 100%. That, that's, that's where it comes down to, like, where, the, where can you control the stress? Like, you can control it in the hour that you have them in the weight room. If you have a really good relationship with the sports coach and the, the head coach for the, for the team that you work with, you could maybe control it on the field or control a little bit better just to where they're not like full padded practice, like full contact practice in rugby, you know, like every single day. So you could control it there. Um, and then where you can't control it is if you don't have a good relationship and they are doing sprints every single day for conditioning and quotations. Um, they are doing the full contact practice and then next 24 hours, they're going to do the same thing. And they're, you, they're wondering why everybody's injured or even outside of all of this, like they're, they're humans for another 18 hours of their life that they're not together, another 23 hours of their life where they're not with the sport coaches and that they have the stressors of the tests that they're doing. They have the stressors of breaking up with a girlfriend or boyfriend of the job, you know, yes, and yes. like, where can uh, you, where can you be that risk manager and actually control that stress? Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you're effectively like the agony aunt as being their SNC coach on you. Um, you'll hear about their breakup way before most people will. But yeah, um, those stresses, as you said, like, you know, people go on about like asymmetries in their program and all these things, like they consider every meticulous detail in their program. And, but you know, they're asymm asymmetrical all day, every day and everything they do. And equally, you can't control the variable of where they're going out to play golf with their mates on the weekend, you know, rugby player playing golf. Um, and the kind of sort of all of the problems that might come along with that, you know, the amount of guys, my, my guys that have got injured from playing uh, football in the park with their, with their mates at the weekend. <laughs> like, again, those stresses that you need to try and control. And 
you can only pull back on your end. And like you said, unless you've got a really good relationship with the coach, I'll try my best. Um, I feedback all the data I have. I try to explain and um, sort of give a lot of context to that data and only give what I have to give. Because um, I don't really want to bamboozle them with, with sort of arbitrary units and stuff. Um, but again, does that message get followed? Some more than others, I think. Um, and it depends on what the game is, how important it is, and, and what player it tends to be. So, you know, there's a lot of frustrations that come into that. And I think, again, I've, me and PG have had this conversation this year, and I think um, I'm quite heavily influenced by sort of care, care win and flat. Uh, one and flat. So, like when he was talking about how much volume that you need in a program, and my volume this year for rugby was uncomfortably low, I would say. I kind of did the program what I would normally do, which isn't hugely high in volume, and then I cut it again um, with the view I'd rather they were fresher, and as long as I'm not losing too much on the strength side, then I'm then I'm going to stick with that. And you know, they will, the guys that will go and do extras outside of my sessions will do that regardless. At least I'm not compounding it. Um, so it's trying to control those variables and, and particularly where the injury sites are, you know, when PJ was talking about earlier, where, where they're kind of, uh, where they're likely to get injured. Obviously, with rugby players, concussions, shoulder injuries, things like that. So trying to make sure they've got just enough, but ultimately I want them to be firing for game day. Like, they're not paid to squat or they're not paid for anything. They're university athletes, but ultimately they're, they're not there. Um, or they shouldn't be to be squatting as much as they can. They should be squatting in order to play the best they can. And I very much keep that in mind. And I think the message is starting to get through, but there are certainly still some old school coaches around there who are powerlifting their players to death with a huge disconnect for why they're doing it. Yeah, and, and um, yeah. I, my, my favorite, you, you mentioned earlier in a podcast, but like <laughs> it, they're not paid to do it, so like you can't use that analogy, but like what are, what is somebody going to talk about on the weekend? Like they're, they're going to talk about how well you played that game or if you won that game. They're not, they're not going to talk about, again, that Wednesday back squat session that you had. So, well, these things, like you said, I'm not, our goal is not to eliminate all the stressors or eliminate all these things or say something is bad, like the back squat's not bad. It, I think it's the, the emphasis on it. Like, what is your emphasis in your program? What, what is your actual goal in the program? It's not this exercise bad, this sport coach is bad, like this thing is bad. It's how are we emphasizing and what, how are we keeping the goal of the goal, which is to win or to score, or to perform better on the field, not to perform better in the weight room or at practice. How does it affect the scoreboard? Yeah, at the, exactly. And um goes back to like, you know, the, remember hearing you from a, a I, I believe it's a UK rowing athlete, you know, one of the, one of the questions the coach would always ask his team when it came to physical preparation, be it the sports scientist, strength conditioning coach, physiotherapist, will it make the boat go faster? You know, will doing this make the boat go faster? And that, that comes back to any sport, you know, it's what you're doing, making the sport better, or are you just doing it to, you know, raise numbers or just satisfy your own inner s and c side because you know if you ask it's like being at a barber shop if you ask any barber if you need a haircut i do now because of the pandemic he's obviously going to say yes you know it's in our best interest to want our athletes to lift weights man uh, to get them to run to get them to do extra prehab work but you know will it make the rugby player smash into contact faster you know will it keep him injury free will it make the boat go faster that's what it comes down to. Do they, like Kirky said, do they fire in game day? All that matters. You know, that's the scoreboard. Yeah, and trying to, again, create that culture. That, 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 that's been the, the biggest thing. I think, like Kirky mentioned, like the, the, it's starting to change and starting to make that shift. And I think just having conversations like these, and it just reaffirms it a little bit of like, yes, the, the, it is going in the right direction. Yes, it's not just straight 
barbells and, and focusing on that weight room session. But yes, we are going in the right direction as a field. And there is hope for our athletes. Like we're not, we're not just going to run them into the ground anymore. And just the, the, the we're succeeding despite of, and not because of, you know, like hopefully the sports performance realm can now help our athletes. Like they're succeeding because of us in some little regard, obviously genetics and talents and these things are going to be the majority of why they're succeeding. But now at least we're not holding them back. Exactly. Yeah. And this is, this is kind of something that we mentioned earlier in, uh, in our previous talk. And I, I, you, you mentioned it very briefly, but I wanted to see if there's a little rabbit hole to dig into here. And I was wondering about it, PJ, is you talked about your concussion protocol with some of your athletes and how you go about getting them back from that and, and trying to prevent these concussions. I think this is big for, we have the rugby, we have football, where it's obviously huge in American football. And then you have hockey, like what's kind of your process there? Yeah. So I guess when it comes to concussion testing and protocols, I'd like to just state for, for one, I'm not an expert in this area in any way. I work off the guidance of a doctor who works at the University of Exeter, who's fantastic in this field, you know. He's, um, he's one of the go-to guys for a professional rugby club we have based in Exeter amongst other governing bodies, you know, and or physiotherapists who kind of guide me along it. So as you know yourself, Austin, there's quite a, a bit of an epidemic in American football with getting concussions and playing on. Uh, in fact, when I was at Ohio State, one of those wrestler, one of the wrestlers out there, ended up um, later dying. But he had, I think, 16 unreported concussions when he was playing wrestling and football. And I mean, it's obviously CTs becoming a big thing, and obviously Will Smith had his had his movie there, um, concussion not too long ago as well. So we've been, we've been taken pretty seriously at the University of Exeter. We get um. Happens to rugby players, obviously, when they run into contact, um, when they get hit. Happens to hockey players um, when they take a ball to the head or even a stick. So it does happen quite frequently in that sport as well, more than you'd think. I guess when it comes to testing, we try and get some baseline scores in preseason, generally speaking. We um, have a subjective measure with our SCAP protocol and a, a more of an objective measure, if you want to use that term, with a thing called a Cogsport test, which just basically takes a baseline of different parts of the athlete's memory. And when they get injured, um, I have dialogue with her doctor and her physiotherapist on site. And when, when, it, when the t- time is deemed right to perform those tests, feedback the information, um, or team doctor would use his best judgment then and allow me to do a thing called a greater return to play, which is like a systematic step-by-step process to get our athletes I guess, ready to play again and involve stuff like, you know, just being able to cycle with a certain RP, rate of perceived exertion, for 10 or 15 minutes, um, get them to do a bit of weight training, get them to do a little bit of skill work, working into like light training in rugby, full contact, and then back into the field of play, you know. But we're very lucky. I think Kirk would agree, the University of Exeter, we have quite a good system with our physiotherapists, with our team doctor in terms of relaying information and getting it across and doing the best for athletes. You know, we have everything on site. So we're quite blessed in that regard. And I think, again, I'm, I'm biased because this is my my role, but I think this, um, this area has definitely been getting better year by year. And then, uh, Kirk, I'm interested in the, the, the kind of front side of this or before, and I, 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 I'm a little cautious to say prevent concussions in, in quotations, but doing our best job to prepare our athletes for the field to be in the best position to kind of avoid these things, be robust enough to bring down the, the rates or the, the percentage of chance that they receive a concussion. Like what is kind of your, your process of doing that with our athletes? 
Yeah, I mean, um, as of anything, obviously we grade grade in any network. Uh, we tend to focus most of our network around isometric work. Uh, that's obviously based in and around most of the research at the moment, suggesting that that could, um, at very least, kind of reduce the incidences around whiplash-based sort of concussion-based injuries, um, as well as sort of maintain a more stable position when they go in for that tackle. I mean, I think a lot of concussion injuries are essentially down to uh, how they tackle. Um, obviously, American football's had a lot of that, but it's the same on the same in rugby. You know, they're coming in with the wrong shoulder or the wrong side, um, or at the wrong level. So, um, you know, but the things that I can control, essentially, all I'm doing is trying to make sure I'm grading in just enough um, network and build that up through the isometric-based work into some manual-based stuff. Um, trying to make sure, for lack of a better term, uh, the neck is activated or at least working um, before a game starts. I hate that kind of term, but, you know, in the warm-up and making sure the players know how to get in the right position with that. Like, you see a lot of junk reps when it comes to network um, with poor setting in the, in the in a poor position. So, yes, it, they might be getting stronger, but it's the equivalent of getting a back squat stronger in with a rounded back. Like, it's not going to be hugely useful to them and it potentially might injure them. So, yeah, that's, that's what we really do. We've got to be a little bit careful because when we get our athletes, we're lucky if we can get our athletes to have a week off contact. So, you know, we kind of just managed to starve off contact for the first week of preseason. So essentially what that means is by the second week, they're a bit sore, already a bit running, already done a hell of a lot of running, but they haven't done contact. And then obviously the skills coaches want to make up for lost time a little bit. And all of a sudden they're like, right, we're going to do contact. And you're like, right, okay, so I can't make their neck too sore or make them stiff to go into their first scrum practice. So again, it's a real balancing act. But uh, the isometrics is kind of where we're at in terms of stuff that we specifically look at. Um, we don't, again, we don't really have any specific tests for that, unfortunately. I know um, kind of Wayland is doing some stuff around that with golfers and things like that too. But at the moment, we don't have any way of actually testing that. How about you and your guys? You. Yeah, this is uh, we we do a lot of the next stuff too. Um, American football, we have the same like you talked about. We have this big, we have a big gap usually of no contact. Um, it's almost like a no football period where they can't do anything. So, as a strength conditioning coach during that time, my goal is to get them used to the contact. So we use a lot of Andy Ryland stuff with USA Football. Um, of grappling and doing stuff to where they're actually getting in base level of foundational contact it's none of it sports specific contact yet but maybe it's just a pickup um maybe it's hand fighting maybe it's just stuff to where they're getting used to contact maybe a little neck snap type stuff to where they're grappling and moving and getting used to it so when they're on the field we're avoiding that huge gap because american football it's usually three or four months of no contact no football and then full contact full football uh within a week so that's kind of my process of doing that with my athletes is giving them the base uh i think andy Ryland calls it the underpinning uh grappling qualities basically but getting them used to that physical contact like you mentioned so they don't have to go in there and it's their first time like touching somebody you know like rest, wrestling with somebody doing something on the football field and that, that was one thing conditioning wise too that they mentioned that they 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 really felt the difference with because we, we did a lot of tempos the year before. And when we broke down and sat down, like when did they feel deconditioned or when was the stressful part? And the two things that they mentioned was when they forgot the play or were stressed on the play, something like something mentally, they were stressed in that situation, which they, they exerted way more, or it was more of the, 
the tactical abilities on the field. And so we had done a lot of tempo runs and a lot of aerobic work building that stuff up. But when they, they actually had the hand fight with a cornerback to try and get across or a defense and offense alignment where they're actually grappling the entire play, they're like that, that aerobic base tired me out. So adding stuff like that in helped with their aerobic base as well for their sport. Yeah. So I think if you think about it from a perspective of the kind of perception, action, action type coupling, like, you know, just throwing a, a ball at someone and ask them to react. If it's the wrong shaped ball in the wrong position with the, with, without the right atmosphere, like you said, it's not really going to carry over. But if you can have a guy actually trying to manipulate you, move you, and uh, ultimately probably trying to dump you on your head, um, it might try and make you uh, certainly engage. And I can imagine there'll be a great carryover through that. Yeah, and I, I, I also believe in that as well. Like, you know, for conditioning, it's, it's difficult to beat some stuff like small-sided games. And to kind of replicate the intensities, kind of heart rate you hit in some games, and also just doing certain drills that kind of replicate, I guess, some situations you would be on the field of play or on the court or on the field of play. Um, because as you mentioned, the aerobic base, it's one thing running, you know, very static, you know, very on paper drills. But when you add elements that are unpredictable, yeah, change the direction and task making decisions it totally alters the way you are you move and also the way you're conditioned toward that task yeah and then the intensity level you're going to get out of your athletes when you tell them to you to win something rather than to run to a certain point like it it doesn't even match up in my book yeah absolutely this is the the last question of the, the the sports performance part of it and it's one thing that i really like asking some of the coaches because a lot of times they're like oh shit like i have to think about this one a little bit well what, what has been kind of the biggest eye opener for both of you in your guys's program maybe it's the the last week maybe it's the last year but something that's like this is the the eye opener for me during this time um i'll go first here <laughs> Um, so my biggest eye-opener this year was, um, again, to quote Boyle, um, I waited at the train station, or I think it was waited at the train station for my boat to come in. Um, I think that's the quote. If not, I'm slightly paraphrasing it. I was strength training my athletes, crossing my fingers, doing a little bit of speed work here and there, hoping that on test day and on game day would transfer. Um Speed is the answer to speed. You know, you can't, you can't BS it. Um, guessing is not assessing. You know, um, I've had this conversation with Kirky. Uh, you know, the weight room is vertical. Obviously, it has its has its place in helping speed quality. You know, putting force into the ground and so forth. But most sports, when you run, obviously are horizontal plane. So I've been sprinting my athletes this year. I just seen it as like a bit of an epiphany. You know. Um, I use timing gates to create the we, we talked about the task specific demands there where it forces them to run because if you ask somebody to run at 100% it's a bit like it's a bit of a vague marker so I got you know our netball girls on Friday mornings to um on the same again validity and reliability the same surface the same time each each Friday morning to run from point A to point B took their scores each week and seen their their time just go down you know and um you look at people like, you know, Ben Johnson and Carol Lewis, they both weight trained, ran the exact same speed nearly, but they all they both sprinted, you know. Um, obviously, we've seen snippets of Usain Bolt's training as well. I'm not necessarily saying doing super strict sprint work is a way to go either because obviously athletes move differently in the field of play. It's a, it's a moronic comparison. You can't compare track and field, but you can take the lessons from track and field and sprinters and put them into your own practices. And we know with Usain Bolt's program, we've seen snippets on the internet. Obviously, context is, is everything. And 
but some of the stuff he does can be questionable. Um, he didn't get to the top on weight training alone. No. Um, obviously, genetics will have a huge role, as is a multivariate model there, but uh, you need to sprint, you know. To get fast, you need to... Speed is the answer to speed was, was one of the biggest things for me this year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and yeah, I agree with that. Um, in terms of what's my biggest opener, I guess we've kind of touched on it a little bit already, but kind of, you know, more is not better, better is better. So, um, and I, I'd rather sort of, again, another like analogies all over the place in this thing, but you know, you don't want to sort of overcook them. You know, you can always add more, um, but it's hard to take it away once you've already given it to them. Don't overfill the glass, don't overcook, uh, overcook the cake, um, those kind of things. So that's certainly one of my biggest eye openers, um, as in like you need less than you think. Also, I think um, the last couple of years in general, I've certainly come around to the idea of it being rugby is primarily a sort of aerobic elastic sport and they get um in terms of what they do and what matters and you want to kind of train at those ends all the glycolytic stuff will happen within the game um uh, but the importance of aerobic and speed work uh just can't be understated and it's the hardest work certainly the aerobic work is the hardest work to sell to your coaches but um it's a huge significance in the field right now that alongside sort of uh trying to harness the the kind of a usage of eccentric and isometric type work, again, influenced by sort of Cal Dietz and um, Stephen Jones and people like that there. But they would be my kind of biggest ones, I think. Yeah, Nick uh, Nick DeMarco talked about the staying out of the middle ground when he was on the podcast too. And he was talking about train the aerobic end and then train the super high power end and the middle will happen. And he's like, I was spending a lot of time in the middle ground thinking like if I spend a lot of time in this middle ground, it's going to help improve it. And he's like, I was missing out on both extreme ends. And he's like, the sport takes care of a lot of middle ground for me. So that, that's awesome that, that you mentioned that. And then the speed work that PJ mentioned, like that, that's been one of the Dan Casey was on and he, he's a sports coach in, um, in uh, high school American football. And he was talking about how speed is king. Like he's like speed. I, I train speed of speed and speed is what allows me to win on Friday night, which is when high school football is played. But those are two points that have been mentioned over and over and again on the podcast. And it's, it's kind of cool to see like where we're starting to transition and where that, what, like what really matters in sport is kind of starting to come out. Yeah. Absolutely. And now we can transition into the, the rapid fire round. And these kind of the questions that I ask all of my guests and I kind of, I love the answers here and just, it's been a wide range of answers, but it's kind of like diving in a little bit of the mind of who you guys are as people. And the first one is what are some of your favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? Um, sure. I'll go, I'll go first here. Um, God, I, I read quite a lot. Um, so not to sound cliche, I won't mention sports science Texas, you know, I read quite a bit with Kirk, I let him kind of go into that area. But um, I guess I was talking about my favorite books ever. Recently, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a fantastic book um, about Auschwitz, Germany, and about finding hope in very dark situations. I think that, was, that book is just incredible. Um, my favorite books ever is anything by Jordan Peterson or Robert Greene. Um, just talks about tactics. I think we spoke about this off the podcast, Austin. I believe you kind of know what level a practitioner is at by the books they read, you know, and realize there's, there's more levels to just, you know, reading Zatsyersky, Verhashansky, even though I was reading Verhashansky's work only yesterday, speaking to Kirky on Zoom, um, and reading, you know, anything that's out there in terms of research. I think um, you can expand yourself and learn a lot of lessons from leadership books and uh, entrepreneurial books as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, from my, my perspective, I mean, yeah, I could definitely come at it with the Robert Green, Jordan Peterson, Dale Carnegie, Ryan Holiday, James Clear, they're all, they're all great and um, authors that I really enjoy reading their books. Uh, at the risk of sounding uncool, I'm actually going to give you an S&C one. Um, so there's a really sort of um, cool book that I really enjoy lately. I don't read as much as many textbooks in SNC as I used to, um, for the reasons we just said, really. But there's a there's a book called The Little Black Book of Training Wisdom by Dan Clayford. Um, again, probably one that people are not sure if people in the stateside would necessarily have, have read. So um, that one's an absolutely brilliant book, and it, it simplifies concepts that are really difficult to get your head around. Um, so, yeah, uh, personally for me, that's probably the best training book I've read in years. Outside of that is all the kind of things that PJ mentioned. Um, again, Jordan Peterson, and all those kind of things. They're great. Boom. We'll, we'll have to bring that book to the States. I'll, I'll, I'll read it and uh, kind of spread the news for you over here. Yeah, so, so you think. I mean, um, I won't profit from it, but um, he will. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Next uh, next question, and this is kind of what's, that, what's fueled the podcast a little bit and kind of what got you guys on and like brought you guys to my attention. So I love this question because it just brings me new people into my uh, network a little bit to connect with is who, who do you think is a good guest to have on this podcast that you guys are getting a lot of information out of that you think that the guests can get a lot of information out of? Well, um, I should, we should probably give a big shout out to Danny Foley. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's the reason we're here. The dude's a gangster, um, fantastic practitioner. So I need to actually pick a pick up our conversation sometime again. Um, I guess for me, um, I'm going to give you a, a coach from the US and a coach from the UK. Um, so from the USA, Giovanni Urrutia. He oversees a tactical, he's a tactical education specialist at Exos in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, the guy has served as a U.S. Marine, and um, honestly, he's always coming up with different ideas on the coaching floor, reads a lot of philosophy, um, has worked with athletes in every, at every level. Um, I'm always picking his brain. He'd be a fantastic guest to have on. And I guess one from the U.K. would be... Uh, one of my best friends, Dylan Myrna. He, he's at the head sports scientist at Queen's Park Rangers. Um, football or soccer, as you call it in, uh, in America. Um, yeah, always picking his brain also. And um, he's, uh, he's consistently putting out research recently as well. He runs his own um, online business for footballers trying to get break into the field with um, FSCR. So he'd be a good one. So Giovanni Urrutia, US, and um, Dylan Myrna, UK. Uh, yeah, nothing for me. Um, I've been, I've probably got one that I think would might be interesting. Um, there's a, a couple of all the guys down at um, sort of Wellington School down here are running a, one of the in I in my opinion one of the best SNC school programs in the country, um, in this country anyway, um, and it would probably rival that of many others too. So um, a guy called James K uh, from there. He again an extremely knowledgeable guy. We're always dipping into what they're doing over there, despite the fact that we work in uh, different populations. So, and I know he's spent, recently spent a lot of time over in stateside. He's very heavily influenced by the guys over at William & Mary. So, um, again, he might be a nice guy to have on and have a chat with him too. So, Boom, I'll for sure reach out. The next next question is kind of, what's next for you guys? Like, maybe it's with the business, maybe it's at the college sector, but what's kind of maybe that five-year goal, that one-year goal that you guys want to accomplish next for you? Um, yeah, for me, it's, like, it's just to carry on doing what we're doing. Like, um, I want to continue building, uh, obviously, the brand that me and, me and PJ are going into. And um, we've got some sort of resources and things that we're looking at putting together that we think um, 
we can really provide some value. Um, so in the near future, there'll be eBooks and stuff. Uh, I can't say you'll end up seeing much of a, a body weight program coming from us in the next couple of weeks. I think it's been done and done again. Um, so we we won't be profiting on the on that stream, but we um, yeah we're we're looking at putting together some resources, bring putting over all of our accumulation of knowledge and different backgrounds, and all the athletes we've worked with, and try and really come out with some a few original type ebooks um, in a space where maybe uh, hasn't yet been covered. I think it's probably that's certainly in the near future. Um, other than that, it's, it's surviving this pandemic with my uh, four month old and my four year old. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, very similar to Kirk. You just released an ebook um, or ebooks, even. Um, we're in the process of writing them and continue our online training and coaching with our athletes who we do, uh, who we have with methodical movement systems and um, looking at kind of practices we can put in for next year, hopefully, at the University of Exeter um, with our squads. Because um, again, a lot of face palm moments, Austin, uh, looking back at our program this year. It's fantastic. And yeah, keep on, uh, keep on keeping on. Do we got a? Uh, can we release a topic from one of these ebooks? Like, what, what are some of the topics that you guys are trying to cover? Um, I'll be vague here. Um, I'm going to say mobility because uh, okay. uh, we get quite a bit of um, feedback on our mobility um, posts because we try and challenge in different ways. So it'll be something related to that, and uh, might be targeting a few niche areas also. Okay, I like that. Next, next, next question, and this is this is one of my favorite. These next two are are my favorite questions of the podcast. But what do you guys want your legacy to be when 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 you guys are on your deathbed, when all this coaching stuff, all the business stuff is over? Like, what what do you want people to say you guys did during this time? I'm, this is this has come from the other night. So this is like a, a famous story about a Spanish um, traveler called Hernando Cortez. It's about burning your ships, and. I think when it comes to my life, um, the legacy I'd like to like to leave is that I left no stone unturned, you know, um, and that I burned my ships. What that essentially means is that <clears throat> I just gave my all, just went for it, screw it, you know, um, what will be will be. Uh, when it comes to my athletes and the legacy I want to leave with them is uh, I want them to look back, I guess, five, ten years on the line, so I had an impact on their life beyond the sport and training and having a ripple effect, you know. Um, so, Yeah. Just, just being able to be able to have no regrets on my deathbed, and um, being able to go say, say I did it, you know, and have no regrets. So that that be my legacy, and also leaving an impact on my athletes and people I work with. I love it. Yeah, yeah, I think mine would be somewhat similar. I mean, um, in and around, like, I would like to think that you can certainly leave a lasting impression upon the people that you spend several years coaching. Um, so from a coaching perspective, it would be nice to know that, you know, when they actually look back on it, that they, um, you know, appreciate what we tried to do because we put a lot of time and effort into what we do. And, and the SNC coaches probably do that uh, as much as anybody. So I would certainly like to think that. Um, I'd like to just be thought of as a guy who, like, kind of did the right thing. Um, and was always very honest and straightforward. No one wants regrets on the deathbed, so what's the worst that can happen? Just uh, just go for it, right? Burn the ships. Exactly. Burn the ships, man, yeah. Last question. This is this is kind of your billboard message that somebody's in the Valley. Maybe it's a strength conditioning coach that has applied to all the, the internships and has got back, um, hasn't got hired. Maybe it's the business person that's trying to start up that small business. Maybe it's during this time. It's a super hard time to do that. What is kind of your guys' message to push them forward and allow them to keep pushing forward to get to where you guys are at today? Um, 
I don't know. For me, it, it's kind of like you just keep going. Like, and you have to really want it. Like, if you if you don't love this industry and you don't love coaching, just don't bother. Like, uh, keep it as a hobby. Enjoy lifting, because. Um, SNC is uh, pretty tough at times and you know you can often put more in than you get out for long periods of time way before you get rewarded with what you deserve and I think uh, you know the, the old clocks quote if you're going through hell keep going um, but keep plugging away the opportunity will come keep talking to people um, but do it in an authentic way like there's nothing worse than brown nosing at a conference um, when people really are interested in what you have to say all they want to do is kind of have you remember that they asked you a question once when they fire you an email or now a week later so yeah that's kind of keep going yeah I guess for, for me my billboard message is uh, kind of like my mantra it's, it's my favorite quote of all time it's from um, the Stanford speech by Steve Jobs um, stay hungry stay foolish is uh, kind of my billboard message for anyone out there and it's paradoxical and it's meaning, you know, staying hungry means you go without eating. It's a bad place to be because you're impulsive and emotional. And staying foolish is being thought of as an idiot and going through your life a bit of a moron. But I like the paradoxical element of it because, you know, staying hungry means you're driven, you're ambitious, you never lose hope and heart in the process. And staying foolish is um, you're always open-minded, being creative, and you always want to learn and better yourself. So stay hungry, stay foolish. Yeah, I, uh... I freaking love that quote. That's uh, it's part of the the anti fragile. He broke it down and talking about what he was trying to get to was how important entrepreneurs and people that are hungry and foolish are. And he's like, this, that's the perfect quote for how people should live their lives because they're the risk takers and they're ones that even if they mess up, like if you're putting yourself out there and if you're trying to reach for something, like you're gonna mess up. Like if you're not messing up in your life, you're not pushing yourself enough. So he's talking about staying hungry, staying foolish is is the mantra to live by. Exactly. Full forward. Thank you guys for being on the podcast, guys. This was awesome. I'm really excited to go back and I take all the notes and really dive deep into what you guys had to say. Thanks, Austin. It was great fun. Cheers, Austin, man. It's been a great time. Appreciate you. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.